Praise God. He is worthy of our praise when we look around and we see the many ways that he is blessing us. Our hearts are excited to turn and praise him. But in the same way, when we look around and it seems like the walls are closing in and the world around us is caving away, we praise his name because we know that he is all powerful, that he is sovereign and that he lovingly guides us as his children. And I'm reminded, did they walk out already? The uh, kindergartners, first graders, if you're wanting to go upstairs to the Bible study and you didn't catch the group, they just walked out. I was going to let you go in a moment. Go ahead. Catch up with them. You just got left, but you can catch it. Um, As we have brothers and sisters who are not here with us for various reasons, I'm reminded of that reality. I rejoice with the team that is now en route to Peru. The great opportunities that they have to go and share the gospel in another culture. To join with brothers and sisters and do ministry in a place that they've never been. And all that God's going to do, that's exciting. But at the same time, we have brothers and sisters who are suffering right now. And I encourage you to continue to pray specifically for the McCorkles as they are still in Ohio. And still uh, have not yet been able to remove Micah from the ventilator. And it has been a trying time, especially as the team of us were there. As, since we left things have gotten uh, increasingly difficult for Matt and Misty. And so just pray for them. Um, and ask the Lord to lead us as a church family in the days ahead as to how we can encourage them and, and stand with them as brothers and sisters. And through all of it, God is our shepherd. And in that we rejoice. Open with me in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. There was a man who had twin sons. And his sons, young boys, he learned at an early age that they were different aside from their looks. They were identical twins aside from their looks They were about as different as they could be. One of them was an early riser. One of them was a night owl. One of them liked chocolate ice cream. One of them liked vanilla. One of them was a people person. One of them, you know, an extrovert. One of them was an introvert. They were different in just about every way you could imagine. Caused a lot of arguing. And one of the ways that they were different, one of them was an optimist. And the other one, of course was a pessimist. And the dad was really concerned because it seemed like the one who was optimistic was happier more of the time and the one who was pessimist was always sad. And so he wanted to try to do an experiment because dads, we do that sometimes with our kids. And so he conducted this experiment on their birthday. He decided for the optimist that he was going to give him a really terrible gift and for the pessimist he was going to give Incredible gifts and see what happens. 
And so for the pessimist, he gave a new gaming system and all kinds of new toys and ball equipment. And he laid it all out in his room, all kinds of stuff that should have made any kid excited and happy. For the optimist, he gave him a large box with nothing but manure in it. And of course, he goes in and he to see what's going on, and he expects that maybe their reaction will be somewhat similar, right? Maybe with such awesome and such terrible gifts, they can meet in the middle. But what he finds is he finds that the pessimist, he goes in there with all these great toys, he's upset. He looks sad, and he asks him, he says, son, what's wrong? And the son says, well, I need batteries for all of these things. And, you know, these things are going to break eventually. And, you know, my friends, they're not going to want to come and play with me because they're going to be jealous that they don't have toys as cool as me. And in the midst of all of these, this great gift, he still finds a way to be upset, to think negatively about it. And then he goes over to the son who is the optimist with nothing but a box of manure. And he's jumping up and down excited. And he was like, what in the world? How can I not make this kid upset? He says, son, what are you so excited about? Like, this is supposed to be a trick. And he says, well, with this much manure in the box, there's got to be a pony somewhere. (laughs) Right? We all know the difference between optimists and pessimists. And today we have the opportunity as we're looking at different stories of grace One of the blessings of this this time that we're having this summer to look at different characters in Scripture and God's work in their life is we're seeing that all the followers of Christ are not cut from the same cloth. They're unique. They have different personalities. They have different frameworks. And today we're going to look at somebody primarily here in John chapter 20, but we'll look at glimpses in other places in Scripture where we see him show up. We're going to look at the story of grace of a familiar pessimist in Scripture Infamously, infamously known as Doubting Thomas. Now, I hope actually to challenge that moniker of Doubting Thomas. Because I don't know if that's, even though that's the way we all know him, I don't think we're actually going to change it. Uh, the culture is still going to think of Thomas as Doubting Thomas. But I hope that at least those of us in this room have a better understanding of what he's like And see how God has worked in his life. And can relate to it. So let me read these verses. You're here in John chapter 20. Let me begin reading in verse 19. And I'll read through the end of the chapter. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, then they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and then place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. 
Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The word of the Lord. So this is the passage where most of us become acquainted and familiar with one of the followers of Jesus known as Thomas. And this is the passage where he gets his nickname, Doubting Thomas, of course, because here he is after Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead. He appeared to the disciples while Thomas wasn't there. They tell him, hey, look, we've seen the resurrected Lord. He's like, well, that's physically impossible. I'll believe it when I see it with my own eyes and put my hand on those wounds that I saw him get as he was nailed to the cross and as his side was pierced. So because of Thomas's skepticism or doubt, people know him as Doubting Thomas. But what we see in this passage is that Jesus knew Thomas' doubt and he revealed himself to him so that Thomas could believe and have eternal life. Now, I want to look at the Thomas's story of grace. And of course, we cannot get it exclusively from this passage. And for those of you, I think most of you have been uh, traveling with us on this journey through the different stories of grace. I'm sorry, my phone is. <laughs> okay, good. Praise the Lord. I'm getting lots of text messages because Micah is being extubated. And that's a great thing. So we rejoice in that. Pray right now. Actually, I'll stop right now. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name that you would guide the doctor's and nurse's hands, that you would enable Micah to breathe of his own strength. Lord, we ask you to heal his physical body, and we ask you to sustain and strengthen Matt and Misty. Lord, encourage them all with your presence. Right now we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we see... We've been traveling through different characters so far, the disciples of Jesus, uh, as, and, and seeing their story of grace. And what we've been doing is we've been framing them this way. We've been trying to under, see what we can know about these people before they met Christ, what their life was like, and then <clears throat> seeing how they came to know Jesus, and then finally the difference that Jesus made, what their life was like after Christ. And we share those three points with you because it helps us to, it gives us a lens through which to look at these characters. We're going to do that with Thomas. But I remind us of these things every week because this helps us to think about our own story of grace. And I hope, uh, I, I missed out this past Wednesday night as we gathered in home groups. I hope that yours was good. I hope that you were encouraged, that you were edified, that you enjoyed the opportunity to get to know your brothers and sisters in Christ. But I also hope that you learned a little, you were sharpened and your own ability to articulate what God has done in you. Because your testimony, your story of grace is something that God has entrusted to you. It's a blessing, but he's entrusted it to you to be able to share it with other people. Because we live in a, a world that is desperate to know the God that is working in your life. So we look at the before, the how, and the after 
of Thomas. And as I mentioned, we'll look at a couple of other places in Scripture. So what do we know about this man, Thomas, before he followed Jesus? Really, we're not told anything in Scripture about the background that Thomas came from. We're not told, uh, like we were told, about Matthew as a tax collector or Peter and Nathaniel and the others. We're told a little bit about their background. We're not told about the background of Thomas. But there are some things that we can discern by looking at the few instances where he shows up in Scripture. Some things about his personality, about his upbringing, that are clear because they were still there as he was a follower of Jesus. So before, Thomas was the less pleasant twin with a seemingly insignificant past. Now, think back to that story I told at the beginning of the two twin boys, the optimist and the pessimist, the ones who are different in every way. Oftentimes, I have to be careful when I say this because you all know some twins. We have a couple of them who are here with us. Um, oftentimes, there's, there's one of the twins that's a little more pleasant to be around than the other. That's not always the case. Not always. Sometimes they're both amazing, right? Uh, If you're a twin, you have to decide which one you are. Are you the one that's pleasant to be around or is that your twin? Uh We know that Thomas was a twin. In fact, it tells us that in this passage. And he's known, Didymus is the word that's used there. He's often referred to as Thomas or Didymus. And it just simply means twin. And this means that he had a twin brother. Now, we don't know exactly who his twin brother was. Some people speculate that it might have been one of the disciples, but we don't know for certain because we don't know who his father was. He's never mentioned. We don't know who his his twin brother is, but we do know that he was a twin. And the picture that we get is that he's probably the less than pleasant twin to be around. He's the pessimistic one. And in fact, I would say to you that the picture that I see in Scripture, it it actually helps us understand why Thomas would stand here before the other disciples and not be able to buy into the fact that they saw Jesus in his resurrected state. When we understand what Thomas's character was like, what his, uh, yeah, what he was like, it helps us to really uh, sympathize with his doubt here in John chapter 20. He was a pessimist. And there's no better place that we see that than in John chapter 11. In fact, this is the first place, aside from just simply being listed with the disciples, this is the first place that he shows up in Scripture. You can turn there if you want, or you can just listen to me. But what's going on in John chapter 11 is the, the sickness, the death, and the resurrection of Lazarus. Now let me read these verses I'm not going to read all all the story to you about how Jesus goes to Bethany and he tells him to come out of the tomb. It's an incredible story. But I want to read the first part to you where Thomas shows up. So beginning in John chapter 11, verse 1, says this. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God might be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, 
He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now that's interesting. It's, we would think he loved them. So when he heard he was ill, he went there. But it says he loved them. So when he heard he was ill, he kept on doing what he was doing. Why? Well, let's see. Then after this, verse 7, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going to go there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he, he, he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And so Paul's right there. So that's why Jesus, he's all knowing. He knew what was about to happen. He waited for Thomas to die so that it would provide the backdrop for which the disciples, Mary, Martha, all those who were close to Lazarus, they were about to have an incredible opportunity to see the power of Jesus displayed before them as, as Jesus calls a man who had been in the tomb dead for four days to come out and he doesn't. It's an incredible opportunity that they had. And Jesus said, look, if I had been there while he was sick, I would have healed him. But for your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there because now you get to see an even greater, inexplicable miracle. You see, if I had been there while he was sick and he got better, you might say, sometimes people get better. He just got well. But sometimes people don't just wake up from the dead after four days. There's no other explanation for what you're about to encounter. That's what he's saying. So come on, let's go. I know that it's dangerous. I know that the people there hate me, they're looking for me, but we're going to go. Lazarus, here's where, I mean, Thomas, here's where he shows up, verse 16. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. There's his pessimism. Here's our first real introduction, first time Lazarus, I mean, sorry, first time Thomas is going to pipe up and speak. And what does he say? Jesus says, Lazarus is dead. We're going to go heal him. Yes, it's dangerous. Thomas says, we're going to go die with him. Lazarus isn't the only one that's going to be dead. We're going to be dead too. This is the, the, the idea that we get here is this is the kind of thing that Thomas would chime in regularly. This is the only instance we have recorded, but it's actually pretty consistent with the other thing that we're going to see in just a a moment, we see that he is a pessimist. In fact, John MacArthur says this, Thomas was a somewhat negative person. He was a worry a brooder, tended to be anxious and angst-ridden. He was like Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh. He anticipated the worst all the time. Pessimism rather than doubt seems to be his besetting sin. So John MacArthur thinks in his study of Thomas, that more than being a doubter, he was a pessimist. Not saying that he didn't ever doubt, saying that he was a prevailing pessimist. But not only was John, I mean, Thomas a pessimist, 
He was also a rationalist. And so I want to look at his next appearance, also in the Gospel of John, John chapter 14. And this is the famous passage where we get the verse that probably most of us have memorized, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But did you know that Thomas shows up in that discourse with Jesus, that Jesus actually says that in response to something that Thomas says? So let's, let's listen to it or look at it. John chapter 14, verse 1. <clears throat> Jesus says to his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Of course, he's speaking of heaven. Verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Verse 4, And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, We do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is where Thomas, so Jesus, that verse that we all know is Jesus' answer to Thomas' response. He says, look, I'm I'm preparing a place for you, and I'm about to go to that place, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to bring you to that place, and you know where I'm going, and you know how to get there. Thomas says, we have no idea where you're going. How can we know how to get there? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, Jesus is speaking of metaphysical realities, realities that are beyond this temporal world. Thomas had to know that. But I think in addition to being a pessimist, Thomas was a bit of a rationalist. He was the type of person that needed empirical evidence. He was the type of person that didn't just make leaps in his mind. He was very logically ordered. Some people are just framed that way. They're usually scientists and doctors, right? They usually tend, or mathematicians, they tend to this direction. They're usually not artists. Uh, They usually are very scientifically oriented. I think this is what Thomas was like. He was a rationalist. And that's what we see a picture of here in John chapter 14. Now, admittedly, these are instances of Thomas as he's following Jesus. Throughout Jesus' three-year ministry, Thomas is one of the disciples who's following Jesus. This is not, these are not snapshots of glimpses into Thomas's life before he followed Jesus. But these are qualities that he had before he followed Jesus and, of course, carried over into his following of Christ. Even as he followed Jesus, he had pessimism and he was still a rationalist. One author says he was a man of gloomy spirit, prone to look on the dark side of everything and live in the shade. There was little in him of the bright, sunny, and hopeful, and hence he was not ready to believe good news. He was not nearly as ready to believe good news as he was bad. This frigidity of his temperament made him skeptical and hasty in coming to unfavorable conclusions rather than favorable conclusions. So here's the picture of what Thomas is like before he met Jesus. He was somebody who probably came from an insignificant background because we're not told anything about it. It's it's irrelevant to the purposes of the kingdom of God. We don't need to know that. Who decided that? Well, God decided we don't need to know about the background of Thomas. 
But we do know that he was a pessimist and that he was a rationalist. And he has the reputation and will, until Jesus comes back, have the reputation of being doubting Thomas. What about how he came to know Jesus? Well, similar, we're not told exactly how Thomas came to know Jesus. But what we do know is that his faith grew as he accepted Jesus' call and followed him faithfully. Thomas is a great picture for us of this reality that stories of grace are not all the same. They don't all sound exactly the same. For some of you, it's kind of difficult to nail down, this is what I was like before I met Jesus. I can tell you how awful, how terrible I was. This is how I met Jesus. I can tell you the date and the time and exactly what was going on around me. I can tell it. I can remember it like it was yesterday. And I can tell you the difference that he's made and how I'm a totally different person. That is the testimony of many followers of Jesus. But Thomas is actually a picture, a glimpse into this fact that that's not, it's not exactly the same. Now, there's only one way to be saved. John 14, 6, Jesus is the way, the one and only way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. But the way that we encounter Jesus and that Jesus works in our life is unique because he works as our loving shepherd and father, knowing how to shepherd our heart from the place where we are to the place where he's called us to go. Only he knows that. And so he meets us where we are. And Thomas is a great picture of Jesus meeting us where we are. He's a great picture of somebody who didn't just have this Jesus shows up at the banks where I'm fishing, calls me, and I used like, like, like think about Levi or Matthew. He had the, he was a publican, a tax collector, despised by all. Jesus calls him, he leaves everything, his lifestyle completely changes. And he immediately becomes a passionate follower of Jesus, trying to get all of his friends to follow Jesus. He renounces all the sin of taking advantage of people and building up his own empire. He renounces all of that and he's a completely different person. And I love that about Matthew. And I love that testimony. But that's not Thomas's testimony. And I love that about Jesus. Thomas is somebody whose faith grew after he accepted Jesus' call and followed him faithfully. We don't know anything about how he was called. We can assume that it was similar to the other disciples. That either Jesus came across him in his ordinary daily routine and said, hey, come follow me. Don't know if he used the fishers of men stuff, because I don't know if Thomas was a fisherman. But he called him, he said, hey, come and follow me. Or maybe one of Thomas's friends reached out to him and said, hey, we've, we've found the Savior. We've found the Messiah. Come. We have instances of that. We don't know what the case was for Thomas, but we know that he was listed with the 12 disciples, handpicked by Jesus. Jesus prayed, sought the Father about who's supposed to be his disciples. Thomas was one of those. He heeded the call. And even though we see his pessimism and his rationalism or his denseness show up in these two instances, the only other two instances where Thomas speaks in the Gospels except for the one at the end after the resurrection in John chapter 20. And it's not a favorable picture at, the, at, at first glance. It's not a favorable picture of Thomas. We see these things, but they're actually a great picture. So let me, let me just say this. He progressed in his understanding of who Jesus is. 
In our passage in John chapter 20, of course, we will see that he comes ultimately to the right answer. In verse 28, where he makes this great confession that we'll dive into in just a few minutes. My Lord and my God. But it took three years of following Jesus, hearing the incredible teaching, seeing the amazing miracles like the resurrection of Lazarus. And then he still had to see him with his own eyes and touch him with his own hands after the resurrection. It took all of that before Thomas finally came to the place of saying, my Lord and my God, which by the way, is necessary for salvation. <laughs> like that's, the, that's to be saved, you have to confess Jesus as Lord of your life. So I think Thomas is a great picture of somebody who progressively understood but responded favorably as he, to, to the extent of his understanding. Okay? When all the while he was transparent about his struggles. Jesus says, we're going to go raise Lazarus from the dead. Thomas feels like, well, this is just dangerous. We're just risking our own lives. We're going to go die there with him. He's transparent. He's not concealing that. He says, you know the way to where I'm going and you'll come. I don't know where you're going. How do I know the way? He's not concealing that. He's not faking it until he makes it. That's not what Thomas is doing. All the other guys say, we've seen the resurrected Lord. We just saw him. You missed it. He says, man, I want to be excited with you. But I, I'm going to be honest. I just can't believe it for myself until I see it for myself and touch him for myself. How can this be? He's transparent about his struggles all through the way. But you know what else we see? Not just the negative side, even though in John chapter 11, we see him initially as a pessimist. We're just going to go there and die. There's something else that's tucked there for us, too. As he faithfully followed Jesus, he was courageous, even though he expected the worst. So he knows about the danger. He knows Lazarus has died. Jesus says he's going to go there to heal him. Thomas says, we're going to go die too. But I don't know if you saw it when we were reading it. He doesn't say, I'm not going because we're just going to die if we do. He says, let's go. So even though he's a pessimist, negativity, he's courageous. He's willing, no matter what the cost. He was faithful, even with his struggles, even with his doubting. Even though Thomas doubted the claim of his friends that he had become really close to, like he probably should have been able to trust them. If they say they've seen Jesus, I've been walking with these guys for three years. Or maybe that's pretty good insight into their character. Even though he said he didn't buy their claim until he saw it with his own, his own eyes. The, the scripture tells us back in John chapter 20, eight day, this is verse 26, eight days later his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. He continued the course. He stayed faithful. So he was courageous and he was faithful to his commitment. For three years, even though he struggled with things and was transparent about his struggles, the picture that we get of him is one who was always there, who never betrayed Jesus, who never was absent. I don't know where he was when, they, when Jesus met them, 
But he was there again with them eight days later, even though he couldn't believe. I mean, you imagine they're all excited, exuberant because they have encountered the resurrected Lord. I mean, this had to shape what they were doing throughout the course of those days up until that point, eight days later. Certainly, Thomas felt like an outsider struggling with his skepticism and his doubts. He felt like an outcast, like they're all celebrating and I'm struggling. But he kept, he was persistent, he was faithful to continue to meet with him. So even though we can't see how Thomas came to know Jesus, we do see in these three glimpses, John 11, John 14, and John 20, we see a picture of somebody who incrementally grew in his trust of Jesus. He grew as he accepted Jesus' call and followed him faithfully. But of course, the reason we're in John chapter 20 is because this is the most important moment of this journey. Something amazing happens. And it helps us to see what Thomas was like as a result of coming to the realization that Jesus is Lord and he is God. So after, what is Thomas like after? He was filled with faith that drove his life. Every aspect of Thomas's life was driven by a confident faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He actually doesn't show up much after this either. We know that he's still with the apostles and acts as they're praying together as the Holy Spirit comes down upon them. But let's see what we can We know that at this point in John chapter 20, that Thomas came to the place where he confessed Jesus as Lord. That's what happens. So Jesus meets him and reveals himself to him. Thomas, verse 28, answered him. First thing he says, my Lord. Thomas confesses at this moment. That all of his doubt has been dispelled. He asserts confidently that the man standing before him, he's probably, the scripture doesn't tell us, but I picture Thomas as he touches the Lord Jesus, falling to his knees. There is an exclamation point, so we know that he's not just saying, "Hmm, my Lord and my God, like he is falling down, exclaiming. Probably similar to what happened to Peter when Peter realized who Jesus was in the boat after the fish incident and Peter falls down. And then again, after the the water incident, they fall down and they're afraid. What sort of man is this? They get a glimpse of who Jesus is. I think Thomas comes to that same conviction right here. He says, my Lord. Now what this means for Thomas to say, my Lord, that's not just a religious term. That's a term of absolute surrender. What Thomas is saying is, I give myself to you. All of me for whatever you want. That's what Thomas is saying. So when he sees that Jesus is indeed resurrected from the grave, and he's recounting all the things that he's done for the past three years, and all these pieces are coming together in this moment in his mind, he says, my Lord, I will follow you. Now, he's been following him for three years, but he commits to surrendering to Jesus as the Lord of his life. And not just the religious part of his life, not just the church part of his life, not just the eternal life 
security for eternal life, he submits to him as Lord. Now, I mentioned earlier, that's an essential confession of every born-again believer. You're not saved until you come to the realization that Jesus is not just Lord before whom, as Scripture says, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. Not just that generic, but the personal expression that Jesus is my Lord. My allegiance, my life, is surrendered to him. That's the place that Thomas comes to. But he doesn't just confess Jesus as the, the director, the Lord, the one who is in charge of his life. He confesses him as God. This is the place where Thomas comes to the realization that Jesus is not just a prophet or a healer or a miracle worker or someone sent from God, but that he is indeed God in the flesh. That the power that he performed all those miracles wasn't just the borrowed power of God. It was his own power. Now this might not be significant to you, but there are people who are in our community who consider themselves certain, they consider themselves certain branches of Christianity, but they deny the fact that Jesus is God. And they will tell you things like, you can't find anywhere in Scripture where Jesus is clearly asserted as God. There are places in Scripture, and this is one of them. Thomas sees the resurrected Jesus, and he immediately says to him, my Lord and my God, clearly says that Jesus is, is God. And of course, Jesus says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. And he's doing many things with that statement. One of them is affirming, affirming that his statement of faith, the lordship and the deity of Christ is right and proper. And it's necessary for every follower of Christ. So after this moment, as a result of seeing Jesus After the resurrection, Thomas comes to the place where he confesses him as Lord and acknowledges him as God. But here's where we go beyond the account of Scripture. Here's where we go into what happens after. History tells us a little bit about what happens after this. Thomas gave his life to the spread of the gospel. So the Jesus that in this passage he is doubtful about whether the disciples actually saw He becomes so convinced that he's willing to go. To go and fulfill the commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. He becomes willing to be the witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And Thomas takes quite literally the call to the ends of the earth. He's going to bear witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. What happens to Thomas after this? Well, as I mentioned, he's found with the apostles and Acts gathered there in the upper room. And we can only assume in Acts chapter 8, as persecution intensifies, Christians begin to be scattered, except for the apostles. So we know Philip goes in Acts chapter 8. He goes and he shares with a man who's coming from Ethiopia. He goes into Samaria. The gospel is starting to spread outside of Jerusalem. But the apostles stayed in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 8. But at some point, the apostles began to be scattered. And the historian origin, as well as others, account to the fact that at some point, the apostles actually sat down and they said, all right, the church here in Jerusalem is, is 
blowing up. And God is beginning to move in different parts of the world. And they actually, just like they cast lots to find out who was going to replace the betrayer, Judas. They cast lots to discern the will of God as to where the different apostles were going to go. And history tells us that the lot for the Parthians fell to Thomas. He was to go east. Far east. And we know that he showed up right outside of modern day Istanbul, Pakistan in AD 43. There's accounts of him trying to do some ministry there. So this is approximately 10 years after uh, Jesus. But it wasn't, there's no account of any success there. But then in AD 53, he landed, uh, found himself on the east side of India and founded seven churches among some influential Brahmin families. And then we know that he was martyred in 72 A.D. on what is now called St. Thomas Mount in Kenai on the east side of India. Now, I want to show you on a map what this looks like. So you go to the next slide. Maybe. Yes. Now, you might not be able to see that, but he originated all the way on the left side in Jerusalem. And he ended up going some almost 2,500 miles up there in Pakistan. That's the first spot. And then, I don't know how many more miles, another couple thousand miles south to the west side of India. And then where he was killed was on the east side of India. That's where the modern day... um, Mount St. Thomas, or St. Thomas Mount, is located. That's where he was uh, killed by the spear at the order of the local leaders. He had a successful ministry. Keep it right there for a second. And planted many churches. And to this day, there's still a sect of brother Christianity that call themselves St. Thomas Christians. Now they have, they're they're much different than us. They were very much disconnected from the communications with the home church in Jerusalem. But God was doing, because of, I mean, that's an incredible distance. They weren't able to um, send text messages or update each other on Facebook or uh, even send faxes, emails, none of that stuff. No phone calls. It was very difficult for communication to happen. Yet, the early church fathers knew that Thomas had gone that way and they knew that he was doing work in India and the historical tradition of the peoples of India, they have many claims to records preserved of Thomas' work there and they know that their beginning started with Thomas, the, one of the 12 apostles, the one that we're looking at today. And what's really weird, and I don't know if this is true or not, is that there are also some people who claim that he shared the gospel and established a church in Paraguay. Now, this is bizarre because go to the next map and you'll see where Paraguay is in relation to this. Yeah. 
Paraguay, of course, is in South America. And so maybe this is a bogus claim. Maybe it is. We know that he went to India. There's evidence that he went to India and that he did what I've just told you. But what's interesting about this is there are multiple accounts of missionaries starting in the 1700s going to Paraguay to share the gospel only to find out that we already know the gospel because centuries ago, St. Thomas, one of the apostles, Thomas, they didn't use St. Thomas, one of the apostles of Jesus came and, and shared the gospel with us. He came preaching the gospel of Jesus and he carried around with him a wooden cross that represented Jesus on his back. That's their story. And this was attested to by multiple missionaries who, who came to Paraguay from various uh, streams beginning in the 1700s. So I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if somebody else who had that name. I, I, I'm not sure what the explanation is. But I do know that Thomas gave his life. He changed. He was no doubter for the rest of his life. He gave everything to let others know about Jesus. Now, the main idea that we see here in John chapter 20 is important. Jesus knows how to meet us in our struggle and help us in our unbelief. We're told in, in, in at the last verses that I read, and this is really the purpose statement for the entire book of John. John is comprised of seven major signs or miracles that Jesus did that show that he is what Thomas just said, my Lord and my God. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, the God who created everything and who has power over everything. That's the point. That's why John wrote this gospel. He says as much in, in Chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written for this reason, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Now these verses are about more than just the narrative of Thomas encountering the resurrected Lord. But I believe that John puts them here in this moment because Thomas is a good illustration of this. Thomas is a good illustration of Jesus showing himself. The gospel is written so we can see Jesus for who he is. Not just so we can see him, but so that we can believe. And not just so that we can have faith in him, but so that we can have faith in order to have eternal life. That's why it's here. And that's why Jesus graciously met with John. I love this picture here. Jesus knew the struggle of Thomas. The disciples did not have to go and tell Jesus, hey, Jesus, you know, our friend Thomas, who's also one of us, we told him that you showed up, but he doesn't believe it. He said he's going to have to see with his eyes and touch with his hands. No, that's not what happened. There's no report of that. Jesus, because he is God, he knew what Thomas had told those disciples. In fact, he knew that Thomas would need this before he appeared to the disciples. He had all of this worked out. And so as they're meeting together, he shows up. And he says every time, just like when he first appeared to the disciples in the, in the first verses that we read without Thomas, he comes and he says twice, peace be with you. Now, I think that's the way Jesus, you know, shalom, ultimate real peace. I want you to have real peace. But I think he's also saying it because imagine... If we're sitting in some room praying together, all the doors are closed and they're locked and there's no way in. 
and some dude that we don't immediately recognize shows up, that's kind of scary. It's good to hear. Peace. <laughs> Look. So when he shows up, when Thomas is there, that's what he says. He says, peace. And it's emphasized that there was no way in for him. The only way he was able to be there because, was because he was no ordinary guy. This is the resurrected Jesus. So he says peace, and immediately what does he do? Knowing the struggle of Thomas, knowing him more than any of the other disciples knew him, more than his mom or anybody else close, more than his twin knew him, Jesus knew him, and he goes right up to him without Thomas asking, and he says, look, let me see your hand. Touch. Jesus knew Thomas' struggle. He knew what Thomas needed in order to come to the place where he would confess, my Lord and my God. And he met him there. All throughout the three years of Thomas walking with him and his pessimism and his rationalism, Jesus was patient and he continued to meet with him. There's no instance of Jesus rebuking Thomas harshly, saying, you're wrong. Not even here. Sure, he says, blessed are those who have not seen and still believe. But that is not a knock on Thomas' honest admission saying, I can't, I can't trust until I see. In fact, there's much in Thomas' example that we need to strive for. So what's, what's, the, what's the point? What's the application for us? I think there's two things mainly. Number one, it's a question. As you think about the story of God's grace in Thomas' life, do you have a story of grace? Can you tell about who you were before you met Christ, how you met Christ, and what you're like now that you have met Christ? I know all of our stories are different, but if there's just no way you can wrap your mind around that, then it, it could be because you just haven't encountered Jesus yet. But the good news is you need to know that God is still writing stories like this. In fact, every one of us who is a child of God is a, is a new story God has written to magnify His grace, to magnify His love and His power in and through us. And maybe today is the day where your life turns around as you turn to Jesus away from your sin and trust in Him as your Lord and Savior. That's why John wrote this gospel. That's why Jesus showed up to Thomas. That's why God called me to preach and to preach this word today. If you don't have a story of grace, you do. It's being written right now. And this is the moment where you turn and trust in Jesus. That's obvious application. Trust in Jesus. But secondly, I think we see for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, He is our Lord. We have a tendency to put on masks. To fake it till we make it. And the story of Thomas flies in the face of that. Thomas challenges us to be honest before God and people because there is, we see, no sense in posing. God knows our hearts. He knows our struggles. We can't hide them from Him. And so there's no sense trying. Thomas didn't have to tell Jesus. Jesus knew. The disciples didn't have to tell Jesus. He showed up. He said, Thomas, come here. He made a beeline for him. 
And that's awesome. Now, some of us are afraid of a thought like that. Like, my sin is exposed. My unbelief is exposed before the Lord. Yes, it is. We should fear because God is holy and he's pure. And we can't stand in his presence, but we should also take comfort in the fact that if he is pursuing you, if he's pricked your heart, if he's drawing you near, this is his grace. He loves you in spite of your sin and all of your failure. And that's an amazing truth. Be honest before God and people. Confess your unbelief. Don't pretend that it's not there. That's what we see Thomas doing. He doesn't just go with the crowd. He's honest. He tells them he's honest with God. And we see a similar thing in Mark chapter 4. I mean 9, 24. We see a, a man whose son is ill. And he's possessed by a demon and is causing all kinds of things. He has since he was a kid. And he comes to Jesus and he's asking Jesus because he's heard that Jesus can heal, that he can cast out demons. So he's asking Jesus to do it. And he says, look, if you believe, he'll be well. And the man... He doesn't want to play games. He's real with Jesus. He says, look, I, I believe. He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. In other words, like, I believe what you're saying, but there's still this struggle. And he, instead of hiding it and trying to fake it, he's real with God. He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. That's the kind of heart that we need to have. If we're struggling to believe God in some area of our life, don't fake it. Be real with God. Be real with your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is how we actually get to experience the power of God. Not by pretending, but by being real. Confessing our unbelief. William Bright, uh, late history professor at Oxford in the 19th century, said this. He said, How oft, O Lord, thy face hath shone on doubting souls whose wills were true. Thou Christ of Cephas and of John, thou art the Christ of Thomas too. If you want to encounter Jesus, it's not by pretending to believe. It's by trusting to the best of your ability and confessing to God how frail and fragile that trust is. And saying, God, I trust you the best I know how. Help me to trust you more. We see in Thomas that Jesus will meet us there. Confess your unbelief. And similarly, confess your besetting sins. We do see a picture that God is gracious and merciful. That we don't get to be children of God by our performance. But the enemy wants to convince us in light of that truth. He wants to convince us. That our performance, our striving to put away sin and work toward holiness is irrelevant. And just like unbelief, I'll tell you that it is not irrelevant. It's essential that we be honest and transparent before God. If our struggle is doubt, confess it. If our struggle is lust, confess it. If our struggle is pride, confess it. If our struggle is whatever it may be, instead of pretending, bring it to the light because God knows it anyway and let him deal with it because we see this great truth that Jesus, that God, our loving father, intends to meet us in the midst of our struggle and deal with us there so that we can have a vibrant faith and trust 
in Him. The type of trust that allows us not just to have a life that's partially surrendered in these certain areas to Jesus, but is wholly set apart to the point where we would gladly go to Pakistan, to India, perhaps in some way that is unexplainable to Paraguay, that we would lay down our life as a martyr for Jesus. That's what Thomas was. And not because there was anything great in himself. He was just an ordinary guy. Not even a very likable guy. A pessimist. A questioner, a doubter. Yet when his heart was gripped by the Lord Jesus Christ, he was an amazing man. A force to make a dent in the darkness of this world. And you know God's still doing that. So I want to ask the worship team to come up. I want to give you an opportunity to respond. What's your story? What's God doing in your life? In what way is He meeting you right now? Is He confronting sin or doubt? Is He calling you to come and follow Him? It's important that you respond. And in a few minutes... Or as soon as you're ready, actually, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. This is a celebration of the gospel. That we can have all of our sins forgiven and have eternal life. Because Jesus, the Jesus that showed up to Thomas and revealed himself, he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. His body was broken. His blood was poured out so that our sins could be forgiven. Hebrews 9 tells us that without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness of sin. There is no way for us to make ourselves right before God. That's why Jesus died on the cross. To pay the penalty for our sin. Those of us who are Christians, we celebrate that regularly. We celebrate the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us. That's why we partake of the Lord's Supper. But we do it regularly at the Oaks. Because the Bible tells us that it's a time where we're supposed to look into our hearts and make sure that we are putting our sins beneath the blood of Christ presently. That we're dealing with the sins in our life. And so I want to encourage you, if you're a child of God, you are welcome to partake of this Lord's Supper as, as your heart is prepared. Make sure, make sure that you deal with the sin that God is pricking your heart about.